0: listening to Hot Topic, Growing Connections in a Warming World, with Becky, Ben and Griffin. Each episode, we interview someone who has an opinion about climate change, which is different to the common consensus. And use the insights we glean from the interview, along with our own research, to provide you with tips on how to have more productive conversations about climate change. This episode, we will be talking to Rebecca Huntley. Griffin will now tell you a bit about her.
1: Rebecca Huntley is an author and researcher on social trends. She holds degrees in law and film studies, and a PhD in gender studies. She has worked with many climate and environment related NGOs, notably the Sunrise Project, with which she helped develop the Climate Compass, which is a climate risk management framework for Commonwealth agencies. Her most recent book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, was a big inspiration for this project. Her book describes her own journey to becoming a climate activist while providing a toolkit for understanding our emotional responses to climate change and how we can have meaningful conversations across dividing lines.
0: We will now be listening to parts of our interview with Rebecca Huntley. If you want to hear more about it, we will be providing the full interview on both our Spotify and YouTube channel. And now over to the interview.
2: I think it can be misleading when we talk about different sides around climate let me just Mm. go straight to the evidence Mm. in terms of the people who are natural scientists who look Mm. at the climate a real a a very small percentage of them think that um, human beings aren't causing climate change or the climate change we're seeing isn't dangerous
3: Mm.
2: you know you can look at different bits of evidence around that but we're talking one to two percent so so when you talk about different sides, you're talking about 2% versus 98%. <laughs> so often when we talk about sides or balance, we are projecting an idea that somehow these um, different opinions are of equal weight and they're not when we look at the natural science. When we look at the public opinion, it's very similar. Only 9% of Australians think climate change isn't happening or that it isn't gonna be dangerous. That's 91% of Australians Mm. know that climate change is happening know that we are playing some part and know that it has something has to happen so again when we talk about sides we're talking about 91 percent versus nine percent now if you cut that data by people of your age people under 25 it goes down to one percent of australians under 25 think that climate change isn't happening or isn't going to be dangerous So first of all, we have to move away from language about the idea that balance means giving people who think that climate change isn't happening or is going to be good, equal weight. We should give them exactly the kind of airing they deserve, which is about 1% of our attention. (laughs) So between one to 9% of our attention. The real debate, the real question is, what do we do about climate change? Not is it happening, but what do we do about it? How quickly do we go in terms of the transition? And who is responsible? Who should bear the burden of the change? Now, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, we could say, look, primarily governments, national governments should be responsible or big countries, so big emitters, should be responsible for acting on climate change. It's not 20 years ago. It's now. We've got a decade of action. So it means that everybody, we have to throw everything at it, everything but the kitchen sink. I suppose the question is, again, about whether you think about, well, what are some of the priorities, you know, um, how much should it, how, who should bear the burden, who should pay the costs and so forth. Um, and that's a much more complicated question and I can talk a little bit about how the public feel about that. But I suppose the question is, I suppose the real issue is that that when we're talking about balance and when we're talking about addressing people's views, the main thing we need to do is engage with people who know climate change is happening but are worried about the pace of the transition, right? Mm-hmm. So if we yeah. move to a completely electrified um, system in Australia, so if we electrify everything, and that tends to be the consensus, we have to basically electrify everything yeah. and, make it, um, and, um, and make it all um, generated by renewable energy, perhaps not even 100% renewable energy, perhaps even more than 100%. So generate... Yeah more energy than we need to create things like uh, green aluminium, green steel, all those other kinds of things that we can export um, Mm. that will replace things like coal and gas that cause climate change. So we certainly do need to engage with people who are worried about the costs and the pace of transition. And generally in my work, those are the only people that I generally want to engage with Mm. because they accept the science. Because remember, 91% of the population largely accept the climate science. Um, so I, th- I suppose I'll, that's the first thing I would say when people talk about, you know, we have to give the other side um, yeah. an opportunity to speak. The other side is not climate deniers. The other side are people who think that we've got 20 or 30 years to, to, to make the transition rather than 10. Yeah. Um, we also have a really massive challenge, not just in terms of reducing emissions, but in terms of drawing down the CO2 that is already in the atmosphere. Um, So we have a a massive energy transition um, challenge, but we also have a drawdown challenge, which means pulling the CO2 out of the atmosphere by reforesting Australia and ensuring that the CO2 that's currently in the oceans, um, as far our oceans, we we address that. So we've got this incredible challenge, a Mm. doable challenge, because we've got the technology and increasingly we've got the will. And so one of the... um, You know, the great privileges of the work I do is I'm working with lots and lots of different organisations, from big climate organisations to local governments of all kinds, to companies of all kinds, to charities, you name it, who are all focused on how we can do this job. None of them are saying, oh, well, maybe the science, you know, is equivocal. There are very, there are decreasing numbers of climate deniers in our community, in our leadership at the board level. Um, there's a lot of vocal climate deniers on Twitter, but <laughs> and some of them in parliament, but let's not pretend they represent, you know, the majority of people. Yes. They don't even represent a significant minority of people. Um, most people have are uh, accepting that this is something that we need to do. And you are part of a growing generation of voters, leaders, consumers, citizens who are not just going to want change, but demand it in everything mm. that you do. So, that's my first thing when people talk about balance. I talk about the science is in the decision. The decision makers across the world, whether it's Boris Johnson or or President Biden, um, have made a decision as well. And it's a question of not whether we act, but how we act.
3: Yeah, and so yeah, and so like with your book of how to talk about climate change yeah. in a way that makes a difference, and about yeah, this concept of. Talking with like people about the climate change, it's not so much talking with the climate change denies because you need to give fair weight to them, but fair weight is 1% of weight because it's only one yeah, percent yeah. of people. Yeah. But like what, what you are what your focus more is on is talking to people who like acknowledge yes, climate change is a problem, but just think that the costs of switching, say, from coal to renewables within like 20 years or like doing that quickly, it's just like there are. There are too many problems with it and it's like that's kind of what yeah, your yeah, focus exactly. is, is like talking with these people acknowledge that yes climate change exists. yes it's a problem but like the, the process of switching to renewables and trying to fix climate change is like like simply like maybe not worth it or like it's going to be cost too much and so that's kind of where yeah exactly
2: starting. and look and this is where the views of climate deniers or what i call climate delayism which is almost as bad as denial at the moment a kind of craftier form of denial is very effective it has a way of amplifying anxieties around so it kind of makes kind of you know the future of coal and gas you know makes people think oh well that's going to happen for another 100 years and there's lots Mm. and lots of jobs and it's all good and there's increasing you know demand across the world for coal and gas all these things that are actually kind of 100 just not true (laughs) just not true so so the views of climate deniers get amplified so the the sensible middle who want action but kind of think, oh, can we do it, um, get affected by the views of the minority, often because that minority view gets a megaphone, whether it be through Sky News or the or the, the Murdoch newspaper or even parts of Parliament. So you're right. So it's about the challenge is telling people that we've got the tools and um, we actually have to make the change. The change is already happening. Um, I did a really interesting piece of research over the summer about The role of um, superannuation funds in climate action was talking to somebody um, uh, a very respected um, energy transition expert in australia called tony wood he works for the grattan institute he used to work for the clinton foundation on energy transition and he said it's not a question of whether we act on climate change or not it's now a question of whether we we act um, effectively or ineffectively. And because Australia doesn't have an energy policy, because it has um, critical climate deniers in its ranks in Parliament, and because we've had a kind of toxic politics of climate change in Australia for over a decade, it means we're acting on climate, but we're not doing it efficiently. We're not doing it in a way that actually could generate jobs or set us up for the future or make renewable energy really accessible to all Australians. so, so to say that we have to prepare for the transition isn't is is misleading. The transition is on; it's happening. Yeah, the money yeah, is moving, the, the science is moving. Exactly. So the question is, do we sit on our hands and think and go la 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 la? la, la, la this is not happening, or whatever, or do we go? Actually, Australia is really well placed to to benefit out of this in so many ways. Do we? actively be part of it and of course that's that convincing people that that is not only possible but necessary now is mm. the greatest communications challenge so when i said that we shouldn't worry about the 1 or 9% of climate mm. deniers we should only worry about them to the extent to which they're able to influence other yeah, people so in thinking we can't do this
3: yeah so like in terms of like um we should so what you're saying there, we should like worry about them in their ability to influence. See the same people in higher like positions of power, say like politicians who like say, oh, climate change isn't real, it's not at all a worry. Mm-hmm. That, that is something that we should worry about because of their like influence, the greater influence.
2: No, I think that's right. So, so what we're seeing at the moment in federal politics is, as you would observe, is that um, we're getting uh, you know, in the last federal election, a very prominent climate denier in Tiny Abbott was basically um, pushed out of his seat by a conservative independent. At the next federal election, you've got a whole lot of new conservative independents that are, by conservative I mean politically and socially conservative, but active on climate, who are going to be um, really bringing the fight up to um, people in, uh, in the government, in the Liberal Party, to say, it's your climate policies are not good enough. So, so it is actually really important to get climate deniers out of Parliament. Why is it more important to get them, Why is it more important to get Tony Abbott out of Parliament than it is to argue with your uncle at Christmas when you're both drunk about climate? Which, if you <laughs> want to do that, that's fine. <laughs> I tend to think that that just causes, you know, family disharmony mm. and and indigestion. And having spent years <laughs> listening to climate deniers and knowing that they will turn themselves into knots before they will agree with you about climate, right? Not about Mm. other things, like renewable energy, you can can even convince people who are sceptical on, or sceptics on climate change that renewable energy is the right thing to do. But it's it's pretty much like pouring water on stone, arguing with a climate denier, you know, (laughs) on Twitter or in your real life. But why it's so important to make sure that climate deniers don't have a platform and a megaphone Is because they're making really serious, they're making or they're stopping really important decisions that affect everybody. They're actually um, not doing their job. You know, if you're a member of parliament, you can think whatever you want, but in the end, you've got to represent the best interests of your electorate, the best interests of the nation based on the evidence. So if you're in parliament and you're ignoring what the CSIRO tell you and what what NASA tells you, what every single university tells you, you know, what you're ignoring the pleadings and advice of you know the CEOs of major companies you're ignoring what presidents and prime ministers around the world are saying if you're doing that and you're sticking your head in your sand and you're saying we're not going to do anything on climate you don't deserve to keep your job because it's essential part of your job that you make decisions for the public interest and the public benefit and the public health based on the evidence that you have the overwhelming evidence if you're not doing that You're saying that you can, you know, that COVID's not real and climate change isn't real (laughs) and all those other things. You deserve to just become a normal citizen. You don't deserve to sit in the federal parliament. So that's my view. So my view about climate deniers is Mm.
3: that
2: only time we worry about them is when they can influence other people and when they can influence policy.
3: Yeah, okay. And so... So in like your so I can tell just like from like the last fifteen minutes, you're obviously extremely passionate about this and that's awesome. (laughs) That uh, or I've had a
2: lot of coffee and a bad night's sleep. Ben, um, and I'm, um, and every second I'm thinking my children are going to uh, destroy downstairs. So I'm probably uh, and, speaking and, and, a bit more enthusiastically and quickly than I
3: normally. No, used. no, no. It's, it's awesome. It's great. And but also like in your book, how to talk about climate change, you describe how like you're now on an endless emotional roller coaster, shifting from fear to anger, sadness, hope and acceptance, and even like a form of denial. Like, could you talk? Because as I mentioned before, our project is a lot about like university students who like know that climate change is like real, know that it's a problem, but are just like worried about it it's just like causing like a worry bigger than a small worry like an actual mm. anxiety about it could you like talk more about like your personal feelings surrounding like climate change and like what well, climate action or mm. uh, lack thereof and about like how you um stay optimistic or if you're not optimistic and manage these feelings mm.
2: yeah i can definitely talk about that is that something that you feel sometimes
3: oh yeah for sure like for me it's just mm. like i i is want to Becky's make he's
2: nodding ahead
3: yeah, well. I, I, I want to make as big a difference as I can, and I want to try and help climate change, but then it's just like you look at the whole issue you look at how big it is and how much it involved It's like what can I do.
2: Yes, so I think. Um, look, I think that one of the things that I noticed is, even though climate change requires collective action right so people working in large groups to bring about change, there is a kind of personal. Um, individual experience that you have when you engage with climate change. And um, when I talk to other people that have been through that similar emotional roller coaster that I describe in the book that you just reiterated, everybody has a version of that, although different, it it might be stretched over different periods of time and and depending on who they are as a human being and and what their personality and character is like um, might vacillate. You know, there might be more hope versus fear, more optimism um so I'm generally a very kind of um somebody who finds um mental health through doing things whether it be you know cooking or walking or just okay I'm generally one of those people who wants to fix stuff there's bad things about that as well because you can't fix climate change climate change is a thing and you can't fix it on your own I suppose the thing that keeps me optimistic and this is a this is a rare privilege is the work that I do is with lots and lots of different people in and inside the, the conventional climate movement and outside, so businesses of all different kinds, entrepreneurs. And so every day I'll have meeting after meeting after meeting, including a meeting that I'm having with you today, with people that are trying to find ways to do things. So, so that helps. That's like a block against depression, which is, oh, God, it's too big. So I get, I get a bit of an umbrella view of what's happening and what's possible. So that's helpful. Um. I suppose the other thing that I have is uh, I have, I talk a bit about the book about hope around climate change. Well, first of all, despair is not an option when you have small children. (laughs) So I, I really can't be in that, oh, well, it's all just too hard because I've got to look them in the eye in 10 or 15 years and say, you know, I knew this thing was coming down the track in a way that was going to dramatically affect your lives and I feel like I had to play a role. So I don't think I have a kind of moral and ethical responsibility to choose to be active, hopeful and optimistic every day in the way that I have a moral and ethical responsibility to get up every morning and make them breakfast and like fight with them for 15 minutes about cleaning (laughs) teeth, which is what I did before I saw you. So I see that as part of that. Um, There are moments, and particularly when there are moments when I um, say, I suppose that the scope of the problem and the amount of resources of the people who were trying to delay action, remember they've got billions of dollars at their disposal, and the scope of the problem in terms of, like I said, reducing emissions and drawing down the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. So that combination, if you think of it like as a pull pull, you know, as a as a pull and a, 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 an immediate like kind of push-pull action that you've got to do at the same time in the next 10 years. And the older you get, the shorter 10 years. <laughs> it seems like if I think, oh, what was I doing 10 years ago? That seems, <laughs> sometimes that seems like a blink of an eye. Sometimes that seems like a lot, and I know this is going to sound like I'm being, I'm advocating denial, but I talk in the denial chapter about an extent to which you do have to just push some of that anxiety aside every now and then when it gets too much, like really looking, like, for example, I don't read much about permafrost anymore because Mm -hmm. I know it's a bit of a trigger for me. It just freaks me out. Like the idea of the permafrost going, I just just go, okay, I'm just going to push that there. There's nothing I can do about that. So I do, and all climate activists do this. All climate activists go, all right, that's a whole other thing that is a bit too overwhelming for me to think about now. So I'm just going to push that to the side because to dwell on that too much will stop me doing the job I have to do. And this is the final point I want to make. I think that really, really good activists or really good people who are in behaviour change and bringing about change in the long term recognise they can't do everything. Instead of thinking what needs to be done, you need to say what contribution can I make? And that might be quite a small contribution, but it's part of a larger a larger, whole. So I see lots and lots of challenges in the climate movement, lots and lots of things that need to be done. I don't think about what needs to be done. I think about what can I do well? I'm a really good researcher. So I just decided I'm just going to research climate change and work with people who want to do stuff about it. So I just think instead of thinking about everything that needs to happen, I think about what is my, what is my skill, what are my, what's my skill set, what's my strength, what's my contribution, and be as good as I possibly can be at that. Yeah. So I would say to any of you or any of your fellow students, University, yeah, there are things that you enjoy doing. There are things that you are good at. There are professions that you might want to fulfil. You might be in, you know, in law, engineering, arts. It doesn't matter. There is a way that you can think. I want to do this thing. I really, this is the thing that I I enjoy doing. That I'm going to earn a living. And how can I apply a climate change lens or strand? through that work and that's what's going to be my contribution you don't have to save the world all you need to do is be really really good at what you enjoy doing and think about how it can make a contribution and some of the most interesting work I do is with groups of professionals whether they be farmers parents been doing work for veterinarians for climate change because climate is going to affect everything from our family pets to you know the cows and horses and pigs and all the rest of it that you know farmers like to raise and we like to eat most of the time so so that's what I would say you know when it all becomes overwhelming work out what you work out what your threshold and you know your position of comfort and function is Mm. work out what you enjoy doing what you would like to do and work out how it can make a contribution to the larger whole and spend time talking with other people about it and also just try and derive a bit of fun and joy out of your activism as well. It is possible. Um, you'll you'll get joy and energy and enthusiasm through acting effectively with other people. Um, mm. We are at a really amazing point in the fight on climate where things are happening. You know, to have a president like... Joe Biden, who talks about climate all the time, who's really committed to doing something about it, to having a conservative Prime Minister like Boris Johnson, who talks about climate, to have countries around the world, developed or undeveloped, rich or poor, regardless of where they are in the world, actually doing things on climate in South America, throughout Asia, in Africa. So, so much is happening, so many literally millions of people involved in the fight on climate so that you look at that and you think i'm not alone and that's the worst thing despair comes from this sense of it's all overwhelming and you feel very very alone in it um and that doesn't have to be the case
3: yeah okay so it's very much a realization that this isn't an issue that we just can't like not worry about this is a very big issue but it's also a realization that i can't solve like climate change i can't fix climate change so it's a realization of recognization and say okay, because I can't fix it. Where is like my limit for the amount like that I can do and, and the amount that I can worry about that I can humanly worry? And then okay, what it's not what I can can I fix climate change? What is can everyone do? It's what can I actually do to personally contribute? And like that's what you'd recommend yeah. to like university students. Yeah. No, no, no. And
2: um, I mean, you know, I meet people every day that are doing their bit and that's really inspirational they're not as as you know as a, as effective and amazing as people like Al Gore and Greta Thunberg are some of the most inspirational climate um champions I've ever met have been very unassuming so I did this talk earlier this year in the Blue Mountains on climate and I met this woman in her mid-80s who kind of you know came up to me, she just was beautifully dressed, you know, like a very, very beautifully, beautiful hair, kind of dressed, very elegant grandma. And she said, I've been worried about climate change for decades now, you know, my, my husband died recently. There's not much I can do. I can't go to the protests anymore or anything. But she said, what I do is I go out and talk to all the people my age and I tell them they have to move all of their superannuation investments away from fossil fuels. So she just in her daily life, because obviously she, all of her friends are of her age or, you know, in, are retired, she's just a, a one woman divestment campaign. And she just does that. That is her contribution because mm. that is what she can do because of a whole range of, and it's pretty effective divesting your superannuation from fossil fuels, um, you know, or any investments you have. sends so a really, really strong message to the investment community that fossil fuels do not have a future should not have a future and i think of her i just think she's amazing you know she can't glue herself she can't join extinction rebellion she can't run for parliament those are things that she can't really do or doesn't want to do but this is something that she can do she can she's a influencer and somebody who can reach that community and to get them to engage in a behavior a behavior change that is effective it is it is quite effective in sending a message to our big superannuation funds and our banks, a message that they are receiving, that they need to shift their investment mix away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, towards nature-based solutions to climate. Um, so I think about her and I've met, you know, every week I meet people like her. And so that is that is fantastic. I aspire to be like her, although I aspire at that age to be alive and for this not to be quite the issue that it is for me now when I'm 50, in 30 years, we'll have worked out whether, you know, how effective we've been now and the work that we're doing. But yeah, so think about her and think about lots of other, you know, I think about to the extraordinary young people who are suing some of through the, our courts, suing Shell, suing the government, and saying, you've got a duty of care to us and the decisions you make um, in relation to what we're doing in the future. That's a bit more dramatic. And they've obviously got money and support behind them but again these are young people who don't aren't eligible to vote for run for parliament can't even vote yet probably don't have enough superannuation or don't have any superannuation so everybody's thinking about what lever can I pull in my own personal life amongst the networks of influence and power that I have and we all have them we all have some Um, people are thinking really cleverly thoughtfully about what they can do um, so I'm I'm as inspired by them as I was inspired by kind of the more obvious um, climate change campaigners who are kind of household names.
3: Your advice for talking about like how uh, this is a big issue, but like you need to think about what you can do, and like you're talking about how how to actually think about this issue, and how it's important when you're talking about people you disagree with the climate change, not to focus necessarily on the people who don't think climate change is real, but to focus on the people who think. Um, maybe like transition renewables isn't like viable, I think. But before um, we let you go, is there anything, um, last that like you wanted to say, do you think to people, university either university students are worried or people who think that we don't really need to take any more action?
2: Uh, I suppose the first thing I'd want to say is, yes. Yeah, sorry, our generation screwed it up. <laughs> um, sorry, you've got to deal with the impact of it along with, you know, a tumultuous um labour market and completely inaccessible housing and <laughs> the desire about whether you know a question about whether or not you should have children and as well as COVID sorry about that apologies Thank you. um <laughs> I suppose the other thing is I think about this is that this is a marathon not a sprint um be kind to yourself there's an enormous amount to be stressed and worried about in the future um know that you're um at your generation's collective wisdom and understanding about this the extent to which it continues to be the number one issue in 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 research on what matters to young Australians shows that you know you belie the characterization of your generation as you know just worried about money and technology you're putting things like climate change mental health and affordable housing on the top of your list of the things that you think are really important, not just for your generation, but for a broader society. So you'll inherit positions of leadership and influence sooner rather than later and have a lot of trust that you'll have both the will and the technology at, you know, at your fingertips to create the most livable world that we possibly can have. But like I said, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Try and just just, um, take little, little steps to make your contribution and do whatever you can to have a bit of fun. You deserve to have some fun (laughs) um, while you're young. So try and um, derive as much joy and enthusiasm from your life while you deal with some of those really, really full on issues that face you.
3: Yeah, well, thank you again, Rebecca. That was like really awesome. And all that you said, I think will be um, really, really useful.
0: Using our insights from this interview, along with our own research, we will be having a discussion about how you can more effectively speak to people who have different opinions to you about climate change.
1: Yeah, so I, was, I wanted to start off um, with talking about her sort of view on um, action with regards to climate change. Um, and she said, it's not a question of whether we act, but how we act. Um, and that's supported by, uh, the report that we mentioned in the discussion for the previous podcast. Um, so that's the climate of the nation report that came out in 2020, which found that 82% of Australians are concerned about climate change. Um, so it's definitely an issue. It's definitely an issue that people care about. So it's no longer a question of whether we do anything, but exactly what it is that we do.
3: Yeah, and, like, th- that's, like, definitely true. And talking about, like, this idea of, like, we well, mentioned 82% of Australians are worried about climate change from 2020 survey. Um, like, there was just a survey that was re- um, released last month that, like, was a bunch of articles by BBC, the guy, and that kind of stuff about basically the biggest um survey worldwide about young people worried about climate change. And basically in this survey, there was 10 countries um surveyed with 10,000 young people. How they felt about climate change and government responses to it. So some of the statistics from this survey are just absolutely like astounding. So nearly sixty percent of young people approached feel like they were worried or extremely worried about climate change. Three quarters of them said the future was thr- frightening, and over half of them fifty six percent say that they think humanity is doomed. Um, and so, they, and also two thirds of them reported feeling sad, afraid, anxious. Many felt fear, anger, despair, grief, and shame. There's like was a bit of hope as well. She's, you can just see that like change like eventually change is going to have to happen because people are worried about it. it's just a question of yeah like when it happens and how efficiently we do it
1: yeah yeah and that's tying that into to what rebecca said um so we asked her about how she feels about climate change and how she deals with her emotions um and her response for you know climate activists um and, and people like her is that despair is not an option Um, Because she feels that she has a moral and ethical responsibility to choose to be optimistic. Um, And so we asked her, well, you know, how do you do that? Um, And she said, well, she's pretty privileged because she's constantly around people who are trying to fix this problem. Um, And so that's quite uplifting to always be exposed to that. But she still does have anxieties. She gave an example of um, the melting permafrost. And she said, you know, she her response to that, um, because she can't do anything about it is to just push aside that anxiety, um, you know, when it becomes so overwhelming, because there's literally nothing that she can do about it. Um, and dwelling on it will stop her from doing her job effectively, basically. Um, and like, maybe, maybe the sentiment that she's expressing there is different to, to the way I, you know, it could be interpreted, but the way, one way that could be interpreted is, you know, just trying to bottle up and and sort of suppress these anxieties and i don't i don't think that's the best way of dealing with it so it, it reminds me of um this uh book i mentioned in in our first discussion with peter ridd um called the minimal self by christopher lash um and that's about the normalization of a crisis um so in it he presents the idea of this person the survival artist Um, and he says that the survival artist takes bad news for granted um, and they are beyond despair. So this person, they deflect warnings of ecological catastrophe by refusing to discriminate between events that threaten the future of mankind and events that merely threaten his peace of mind. Um, So I think, I think with that, it's, you know, you you don't want to be, you don't want to be a survival artist, right? And you don't wanna be a person who just pushes aside all these things that make you anxious, all these things that worry you. You want to be able to come to terms with that. So how do you avoid becoming a survival artist? Well, I think in order to do that, you need to address and come to terms with the issues facing the world. Um, You need to observe your feelings as they arise, observe your anxiety, ask yourself, how do I feel about this? What emotion am I currently experiencing? Don't try to act on it or analyze it. Just acknowledge it, um, because I think it's very important to honor how you feel. Because if you don't do that, if you suppress your emotions, if you push them away, if you say, "Oh, it's all too much," if you say, "Oh, I can't, I can't think about that," because it's such a big issue, you know, I'm, I'm just going to push that down. You know, if you let these um, subtle anxieties bottle up inside you, it's going to end up affecting your behavior negatively. Um, And so you can avoid that if you actually acknowledge these things and, you know, take a step back and say, okay, I'm experiencing this, this is a problem. Um, and you know, just acknowledge your feelings. I think it's also important if you have recurring, severe anxiety about these sorts of things to seek therapy, because a lot of therapists these days are starting to acknowledge and treat climate anxiety as an actual mental health issue.
3: Mm. Yeah, and I think what you said is like really, very important, very true. And just like with the part you mentioned, you don't know whether it's a correct interpretation about like what she was saying about pushing like this issue to the side, say with the permafrost. I think that could be interpreted as bottling up and therefore like a bad thing because of the consequences of that, as you mentioned. But I think a lot of it is also just, um, as she also said, recognizing that really good active and really good people who are involved in bringing about change in the long term recognize that like they can't do everything and so yeah. instead of thinking like what needs to be done say like with the permafrost you need to think what contribution can i make and that might be a quite a small contribution but it can be part of a larger whole and i think like sometimes with like this anxiety about climate change it's like as they were saying about permafrost or whatever it is for you about whatever overwhelms you it's not so much like completely ignoring something or bottling it up. It's just recognising, okay, this, I I care about climate change and I want to do something. But this specific issue is worrying me too much right now and it's overwhelming me too much right now. So whilst I'm going to recognise it's bad, I'm also going to set that aside and just like put out of my mind not to bottle it up, just for the purpose of like, because dwelling on that thing would stop me from doing the job that you have to do. and like that's what she mentioned and that's why i think it's like when she mentioned about um just doing what contribution can i make and like, i think this is like quite important especially for we mentioned the past couple of studies about australians and also people around the world young people The studies are now showing there's the majority of young people worried extremely worried about climate change in the future right and so i think this is really important just this idea of like yes there are some things you're worried about and but then what you have to do and really if you want to be a good activist and you want to make change long term you can't be thinking what needs to be done you have to be thinking what contribution can I make and then go and do that contribution and sometimes there's going to be things that like are like really overwhelm you but and like yes they're important but dwelling on them is going to stop you from doing your contribution it's like sometimes you're just going to have to not dwell on them and remove them from your mind
1: yeah and that one of the things that um, she said was that despair comes from feeling alone. So hmm. when you're overwhelmed by these things, it's important to, to acknowledge that there are so many people and, you know, people our age who are trying to, to act on these things and, you know, doing what they can. And so you, you do have a community of people who are actively trying to uh, fix these, these massive problems, um, which is quite reassuring.
3: Yeah. And, and also, yeah, and also, like, with talking about the community who's trying to fix these problems, she also kind of mentioned, like, using your own community. And with this idea of um, doing the contribute, making the contribution that you can make and not trying to fix climate change, doing what you can do, she also said that, like, a really important thing to do is pull that lever within your own personal life of, of your networks of influence that you have and power that you have. And, like, you might think, oh, I don't have any power. I'm just a uni student. I'm just a high school student. I'm just, even a primary school school or whatever. But everyone has like networks of influence and power within their own lives. That includes like their friends, that includes their family, that includes their parents, that includes their fellow peers. And that, that also includes in terms like networks of influence, that also includes just like your own headspace. So it's just like working within your network of influence, make the contribution you can make and not trying to go outside of it and then get overwhelmed by the things that you can't end up doing.
1: Tying into what you were just saying, um we found an article in the international journal of mental health systems on the relationship between climate change and mental health um and one of the big sort of recommendations that they gave um, is that you know they said in the long term hope and morale in the community about climate change is deeply entwined with mental health promotion and for the community to be less pessimistic about the future requires a realistic understanding of what climate change means So that's actually acknowledging, you know, what is happening, coming to terms with that, and also what can be done. And in that sense, it's what can you do, right? And what can you do, um, to feel less anxious about this? And, you know, we've just said you can do that by doing, you know, finding something, what, what interests you, what are you good at? And looking at that from a climate change perspective, putting, you know, a, a climate change lens on your interests.
3: Yeah, and like, and reinforcing like the importance of what we said before about the amount of people worried and also how to get rid of this worry. Like this, like academic paper like argues that not only will the direct impacts of climate change, such as extreme weather events, have significant mental health implications, but also like understanding the full extent of the long term social and environmental challenges posed by climate change has the potential to create emotional distress and anxiety, which is like this paper is saying that like it definitely can and will. Like have these mental health implications, which is why we need to like work out, as we discussed, like how to actually approach, this, approach this, indiv- this issue on an individual level. Talking about the issue on an individual le- level, in the interview, I really liked how she mentioned that older woman who has been worried about climate change for a long time and realizing that she can't participate in the climate protests anymore, instead goes around to all her friends and tells them about the need and the importance of moving their supers away from fossil fuels. And, like, I, I, she, she thought that was really inspiring and kind of so did I. Cause I was just this, like, woman worried about climate change for decades, just doing what she can do. And, like, that's like, I think Leah very links in with, like, yeah, the idea of just making the contribution that you can make. Because if you try to go beyond that contribution, if you dwell on too much about, the long-term like how bad it's going to be then that can like lead to the mental health problems you need to like acknowledge them but whilst also realizing you can only do what you can do
1: yeah and there's you know there's a number of different things that people different ways that people respond to what can i do you know last time we talked to sergio who said you know he felt the most significant thing he could do was these you know extinction rebellion protests um and there's this common criticism of xr that you know it's it's so extremist it's so you know it it gives climate it gives you know climate change activists a bad name because you know all these people are getting arrested um and rebecca sort of pointed out and you know this is something that sergio talked about as well is that that's sort of missing the the point of XR entirely. Um, So uh, Rebecca said that all great social movements have radical fringes. So XR is the radical fringe of the climate change movement. And she related it to the suffragettes. You know, not all um, women, you know, not all people, um, you know, trying to promote, you know, voting rights for women and that sort of thing. Not all of them were extremists. But some of them were, and those people were important because they showed the depth of feeling and anger that people were feeling at that time. And that's that's the purpose that XR um, has today as well. It's it's an expression of just how much people care about this problem. And that's yeah. also very important.
3: Exactly. Um, and you see so you mentioned with the Sergio part, which is obviously like very interesting, like about, yeah. Uh, this is just an extent a radical part of the climate change movement like it's an expression of this worry and also it's, even with peter ridd as well like one of the major things i got out of like the interview with him was that they're like yeah he was very much like the well, the the danger of climate change denialist our oh, well, big focus of his was still the worry of young people that is like a big was a big concern of his the fact he was worrying about how like the, the amount like of young people worrying about this issue and obviously I had different perspectives of it, but I feel like it's quite interesting how like even like through all three of them, but like Rebecca Huntley, Sergio and Peter Reed like major focuses like this like worry and I guess how to get around, um, get around it. Peter Reed's answer was don't worry about it, it's not a worry. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> Sergio's answer was like go out and do stuff and Rebecca Huntley's um, and, like go out and get involved and participating cause this is our future. And Rebecca Huntley's answer was realising that you can, like, realising that it is a worry and it is a danger, but recognising that you can only make the contribution that you can make.
0: You just listened to our final episode of Hot Topic, Growing Connections in a Warming World. In this episode, we talked about climate anxiety and we discussed the importance of seeking mental health treatment and also in taking climate action, which is within your personal limits. We hope you enjoyed the series and make sure you apply our climate action tips. Thanks for listening.